Hi, everyone. It's Jivana. I just want to come on for a moment and thank our sponsor, Offering Tree. They're an all-in-one, easy-to-use, community-backed business that saves you time, energy, and money as a yoga teacher. Offering Tree allows you to create a website in less than 30 minutes. Plus, you get a discount through Accessible Yoga. Just go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to get your discount today. Okay, here's our episode. Welcome to the Love of Yoga podcast. I'm your host, Anjali Rao. This podcast explores the teachings of yoga for self and collective transformation. We dive into how spirituality and philosophy can ignite social change. I share conversations with folks who are on the front lines of justice and liberatory movements, thought leaders, change makers, and healers. Dr. Tria Blue Wakpa is a scholar and practitioner of indigenous contemporary dance, North American hand talk, martial arts, and yoga. Professor Blue Wakpa has taught a wide range of interdisciplinary and community-engaged courses at public, private, tribal, and carceral institutions. In 2020, she was the first assistant professor at UCLA to receive a Chancellor's Award for Community-Engaged Scholars. She is a co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Race and Yoga, the first peer-reviewed journal in the emerging field of critical yoga studies. It examines issues surrounding the history, racialization, sexualization, inclusivity, or lack thereof, of the yoga community. The journal features research-based articles, editorials, and reviews of books, films, and art exhibits. I'm so excited to have this conversation with Dr. Tria Blue Wakpa. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here today. And can you first maybe start this conversation with sharing about the work you do currently, how you got here, perhaps share some of the points of entry into your own work? Sure. Um, I'm currently an assistant professor of dance studies in um, at UCLA in the Department of World Arts, Cultures, and Dance. And um, I came to this work through a variety of, you know, lived experiences outside of academia and academic um, experiences. Um, Prior to going to doing my PhD, I did an MFA in creative writing. Um, at that time, I did a yoga teacher training that was in 2009. And um, I also, um, at that time, had a relative, a young relative who um, had addiction problems and they were in and out of juvenile detention centers. So I was thinking at that time about um about yoga movement practices their potential um for healing uh within 
a, a violent system of settler colonialism. And so that sort of was the basis um, for my dissertation project, which has since evolved into my book project. And I'll also say I had, you know, some training and some experiences even as a child um, that continued to influence my work today. So my mother was my first yoga teacher. I started doing yoga at 14 years old. And um, she was teaching at that time in my father's karate school or our family karate school, um, which was located in, in Napa. And my siblings and I all, um, we all trained together. So that was really, and, and I started doing karate at age seven. So that it was kind of like I had the background in um, the martial arts, in yoga, and then also um, was doing a yoga teacher training and thinking about, um, you know, the, the carceral, the carceral system and how can I think critically about this and um, think critically about my own practice and my own teaching of yoga. Because when I finished the yoga teacher training, we were required to do hours mm -hmm. um, and those hours could be done, you know, in yoga studios, which I think pretty much everyone other than me did. And I offered um, those yoga classes in um, a detention facility for girls who were um, incarcerated in San Diego. Mm. And so that's begun your uh, foray into looking at yoga critically of and bringing that into context with race and uh, the settler colonial experiences of all of us like I'm, I'm also a you know a guest here in settler colonial land so I appreciate bringing that lens a lot because we really I'm really trying to get more conversations in where we examine uh, yoga critically uh, when it comes to race or gender or uh, caste so I'm so excited to continue this conversation and I also was reading up about the you know the how you found or thought of race and yoga, the journal itself, and it grew as a, a, a conversation, really. So can you really talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so at that time, I was at UC Berkeley doing my PhD in ethnic studies, and I think it was about the second year in the program, and I was continuing to teach yoga in carceral settings. I was working with a program there called Naroga. They had um, a whole teaching um, teacher training that was dedicated to um, learning pedagogy in order to implement best practices when working with youth who were incarcerated, teaching them yoga. Um, and so it was through those experiences. And at the time, there was very little available about yoga from an intersectional approach. Mm -hmm. And if you were even to um, search race and yoga, what you would come back with are statistics, you know, um, but the, but beyond that, there was very little available. And so I wanted to think this through and I wanted to think this through in community. And so at that time, I started a race and yoga working group um, mm -hmm. and we met um, on UC at UC Berkeley um, in the same building that the ethnic studies department was. And we invited, um, it, it was scholars, um, students, 
uh, faculty, uh, people who were teaching and practicing yoga uh, in the community who did not have a university affiliation. And we started to do different readings and have conversations. Mm. And then um, I did that for a couple of years. And then I met um, Dr. Sabrina Strings, um, who was, I believe, a chancellor's, uh, UC chancellor's postdoc at the time. And she, um, when she got to campus and in the area, she wrote me and told me that this was, she was also a yoga practitioner and a, an academic, and she wanted to explore this further. And so then we created the first um, race and yoga conference. We had a couple of race and yoga conferences or maybe a few race and yoga conferences. And then eventually that led to the founding of Race and Yoga Journal in 2016, I believe. Mm -hmm. And um, another person who's been really key to that um, is Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer Musial, who is our and I think has always been um, our managing editor. And I will say, um, I'm I'm now the editor in chief. I was prior to that. I was the co-editor with Sabrina Strings, but she stepped down um, just to work on. She has a lot of other pro, uh, projects going on and had a lot of a lot of success, wonderful success with her um, her first book as well. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. So I, I want to just draw back go back into the 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 your own growing realization that you know the liberatory practices of yoga were and have been exclusive um that people from many marginalized communities do not and did not have access or they did not feel that they could belong or feel safe in a yoga studio or any other yoga community or space how has your understanding expanded or evolved since that time? Has it changed? Has it shifted? Yes. Well, first, first, I think I um I want to clarify um that in dance studies, um, a foundational understanding is that movement practices are fluid, mm. meaning that they can have um, many meanings for the people who are doing the practice or the people who are watching the practice. So I think it's really hard to say that yoga is liberatory or it's not liberatory. Often it's a mix, mm-hmm. right? There are certain things that are happening that are subversive. Um, and there's and and there are ways that the yoga practice is also simultaneously reifying these dominant structures. So, for instance, I'll give you an example of that. Um, I have a, a chapter forthcoming, and I believe it's called Scholar, an article forthcoming in Scholar and Feminist Online, and the issue is on aging. So, um, I wrote a article on um, quote unquote, aging women of color engaging in radical movements. And one of the people that I interviewed, she speaks to um, working at a school in LA um, in which the teacher turnover um, rate was really high. And the way that she was, she articulates that she was able to continue at that school, one of her practices was um, yoga. And she would do the yoga in the morning and she would do it in the evening, right? So there's a way that this is 
um, healing, promoting healing and wellness for her, but it's also allowing her to, um, to continue working in this mm. capitalist system, right? So um, that is sort of foundational to dance studies is that, you know, these movement practices um, are very fluid and, and, and we see this too, like this is my book project examines this as well, you know, um, at Indian boarding schools in the US, they would often have native students do these plays in which they could wear native regalia, right? Mm -hmm. And there are many ways in which that was intended to assimilate and convert native students. And yet they also, one of the arguments of the book is that they also found ways through their movement practices to perpetuate their native identities in overt mm -hmm. and subversive ways. So I think when we're talking about whether yoga is liberatory or not, it really depends on the particular context. context. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, and the teachings of yoga itself, I mean, they're so expansive and they're so contradictory and uh, paradoxical. So the same concept, for example, can be co-opted. Uh, by a system of oppression, like, for example, dharma can be co-opted in so many different ways. So I completely understand what you're, what you're saying about, um, you know, the liberatory teachings themselves being um, absorbed by a, a, a system of oppression, uh, like capitalism, for example. So where... May I, oh, and I would, I just wanted to say that I, I wouldn't want to not um, highlight this, which is that there has been people on social media, in mainstream articles, in scholarly art articles. There's so many people doing so much important work since the time that I founded Grace yeah. in Yoga Journal. So yes. I just want to say that, like, yes, there, you know, yoga does, um, you know, further these uh, systems of, um, you know, these social structures, dominant social structures, but a lot of people are challenging that. And mm -hmm. um, I would encourage you to look at, you know, some of the folks that we highlight on um, race and yoga social media, or even in our journal, which is an open access journal, which was really important to us, right? Because mm -hmm. a lot of scholarly journals, yes. um, people, if they don't have a university affiliation, cannot access them. So yes. since it's very founding in 2016, race and yoga has been an open access journal. And I don't think we've, I, I also don't think we Maybe one time we charge like $5, but I think we've, um, beyond that, we've never, we, we also never charged for a race and yoga conference. Like it was really important for us to make the conference and the journal um, widely accessible. I love that because I feel like, you know, uh, scholarship in, uh, especially in yoga spaces, which is again, one of the contradictions is so elitist. Um, very few people who are everyday practitioners can even access some of the teaching. So I really appreciate the equity feature of your journal and your work so much. Where do you think we are now in, in the Western framework of yoga? What are some of the things that you have seen change? Mm -hmm. State of yoga in the West, if, if you will. Well, I, I, I mean, I think, like I said, you know, there's a lot more people doing um, you know, 
writing, drawing attention to the ways that yoga has often been um, an exclusive uh, practice um, in the U.S., but also, uh, you know, people are um, taking material steps, right? Like there's yoga teacher trainings that offer scholarships now um, for people of color yoga practitioners um, or there's classes, right? More attention, I think, to sliding scale classes. And so I think a lot more people, not always, but I think a lot more people are aware of these issues. There's a way that that can be like yoga and social justice can also be co-opted, right? Mm -hmm. And can become the next thing as well. Um, I do think there's more, you know, part of it um, is the work that people are doing, but part of it is also, I think, the times. So I do think there tends to be like more, more awareness about that. And then also, um, I think um, in academic circles and even like social justice circles, there tends to be um, uh, like the way that settler colonialism works is it often tries to obscure or conceal contemporary Native people's presences and practices. So I think there's also more attention like at yoga conferences or yoga events to think through, like what are the politics of practicing yoga on occupied indigenous land, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that that's another thing um, that is coming more to the forefront. And I think um, native and indigenous yoga teachers are also um, raising awareness. You know, they've been instrumental in raising awareness about these um, important issues. Beautifully said. Thank you for sharing that. In uh, where do you think we can go from here? Like, how do we how do we tap into the transformative potential of yoga? Like you said, you know, uh, the liberatory practices of yoga can be co-opted and have been co-opted. How do we hold that intention with the potential to reduce suffering, especially in the world that we are living in today where racial differences, uh, trans rights being attacked so often, all, you know, in so many states, reproductive rights being attacked in so many states, with all these issues that are going on, how do we, do you think, in your opinion, we can tap into the potential of yoga to reduce suffering? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question. I think it's a personal question, um, you know, and maybe there's no one, one, there's definitely no one size fits all answer to that. But, you know, I think um, a lot of what we discuss in dance studies is that uh, movement practices have the potential Um, to be transformative. And what we practice on our mat, we can also take off of our mat, or we should also be taking off of our mat. So I think, for example, practicing generosity towards yourself is something that can, that can be practiced, you know, when you leave your mat, when you leave your studio. Um, Another thing I've written about, I have, um, Kara Hagen has a book um, called uh, practicing yoga as resistance, voices of color in search of freedom. And I do, um, I look at a video called Hojo Yoga that Haley Laughter, who's a Diné 
practitioner. Um, she made a short video and uploaded it to YouTube. And um, in dance studies, another central premise is that movement is a source of knowledge mm. and theory on its own, right? Which is also, I think, a, um, an indigenous understanding. And so I think there's ways too that yoga can enact really important relationships that can challenge settler colonial constructs. So for instance, one settler colonial construct which can be very harmful is anthropocentrism, right? This idea that humans are superior to, you know, more than human kin, air, land, water, non-human animals. But in yoga, we're taking those forms, right? And so like, what does that mean? And, and how can, can, you know, um, training our body in those ways and taking the forms of these different non-human animals, you know, forged, allow us to forge and think through and move through different um, relationships. So that's part of, um, you know, what, what I'm doing in that paper and that I think, you know, probably deserves more intention as well, right? And um, there's a different, you know, uh, yoga also has indigenous roots, Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so I think um, what's interesting that I write about in that paper um, and, you know, with other papers I've written about Native people or about and, you know, with permission of Native people who are yoga practitioners is that yoga becomes a way for them to actually further their native and indigenous identities, right? They they discuss that and they talk about that. So definitely yoga has these powerful transformative um, possibilities. And I think, you know, um, people can, uh, can um, locate those and apply those in many different ways and many different contexts. Mm, beautiful. Hi everyone. I just want to pop in here really quick and remind you about our sponsor, Offering Tree. As yoga teachers, we are our own business managers, website designers, and producers. It's a lot. And Offering Tree offers an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to succeed while we're doing all the things. And I'd just like to say that through this partnership with the Love of Yoga podcast, Offering Tree has shown that it's committed to supporting accessibility and equity in the yoga world. Offering Tree is a public benefit corporation and they're driven by a mission of wellness accessibility, which we share with them at Accessible Yoga. As an Offering Tree user, you'll get uh, to join a supportive educational community and you'll also get free webinars with top experts in wellness and entrepreneurship. And of course you get a discount. So go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to learn more and to get your discount. Okay, let's go back to the episode. Yes, absolutely. Yoga has very indigenous roots when we're talking about the history of yoga as well, right? I mean, the, the systems and the teachings and the traditions of yoga absorbed and integrated indigenous populations and belief systems of the Indic Valley civilizations, if you were to look at history. So I think it's it's in parallel to what what you're also uh, sharing so i appreciate you bringing that in and i know you're uh, you know dancer and we i'm really interested in learning more about it and if you could share with the listeners too something about the the dance form that you practice and teach and share and are are an expert of 
as an Indian classical dancer myself, um, I'm also very interested in a multidisciplinary approach to uh, sharing the teachings of yoga. So can you delve into some of the core tenets of indigenous sign language? Yes, yes. Um, so uh, indigenous sign language, it's also been called um, Plains Indian Sign Language, although people say that's a misnomer. Actually, um, Makablu Wakpa says that's a misnomer um, because it's uh, indigenous uh, sign language or North American hand talk is the lingua franca or common language um, mm -hmm. that united indigenous peoples um, throughout North America. And so it wasn't just um, only, uh, you know, Plains Indigenous peoples who were using this language. Um, but yeah, it had a variety of different purposes. People used it within the tribe. Um, they would often, a lot of times when people hear about sign language, they think, oh, you know, um, they must be deaf. And part of that has to do with, um, you know, Cartesian dualism and, and seeing movement practices as inferior to written, uh, to spoken word and to text, but actually many indigenous people would sign along, um, along with their speaking. And if you think about this, um, it can have many different benefits, right? It can be an inclusive practice because elders understand, um, what you're talking about. Young babies can even respond, right? Like we, or, um, babies, we know that babies, um, are able to understand and communicate before they're even able to speak, right? So that's why they use um, sign language. And then it was used, um, it, you know, it was used in context when people didn't want to speak, or maybe it was even, you know, that you didn't want someone to overhear you, or maybe it was dangerous to speak, such as in um, a warfare context. And it was also used when people from different tribal nations got together and they didn't share a spoken language. And so they would use um, they would use sign language to communicate, right, for like purposes of trade. So it had um, it had and it has many, many different purposes. Um, Makablu Wakpa also discusses the ways that like when people are revitalizing their native languages, many native languages are endangered or sleeping. And that has to do with ongoing colonization and in Indian boarding schools, um, a long history of you know, educational institutions, Native people being forcibly and coercively taken into um, these institutions where they were prevented from speaking and signing their languages. And so um, it can be used alongside, it can also be used alongside um, spoken language, Indigenous spoken language revitalization, and that can allow people um, to be um, fully immersive in indigenous languages. So if you don't know the word, you know, maybe you know the sign, indigenous sign language. Yeah, so it has a lot of different purposes. And then um, just most recently, um, people, um, indigenous people have also incorporated for, a, I mean, this is a long history, but they've incorporated indigenous sign language into their dances. And then just recently, I wrote a paper about um, uh, an article that was published in American Quarterly that looks at Buffalo Dance, which is like a 15 second um, silent film, which is actually not a Buffalo Dance, although it, it was it was called a Buffalo Dance because it was used to promote Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, but it was actually not a Buffalo Dance. And the um, the dancers use North American hand talk 
um, in the film. And so I do like an analysis of that and discuss the ways that it evidences their, you know, expressions, bodily expressions of sovereignty and survival. Oh, wow. That sounds fascinating. Where would we find all this work of yours? Yes. So um, I'm interested, as I was saying, in open access. So I try to take um, everything that I've published and make it available open access at academia.edu. So um, I think some of those, some, some things that I discussed are forthcoming, but if it's been published, I think most of them are available on my academia.edu and you can just download a PDF there. Oh, I love that. I'm going to definitely take a look at that. I love academia.edu. <laughs> um, so one more thing that I wanted to refer back to your uh, statements and actually an article uh, in the Race and Yoga Journal, which I thought was really interesting to talk more about. Uh, and the, it's titled Transforming Space, Spatial Implications of Yoga in Prisons and Other Carceral Sites in which the author examines the possibilities and limitations of practicing yoga in prisons. And I was wondering if we could, uh, you know, how can we hold the discourse and the movement for abolition along with the practice of yoga in prisons? Any thoughts on that? Yes, I think it's, I think it's a really good question. And of course the critique is, is that, like reforms, um, abolitionists understand that reforms to the prison can actually make the prison, the carceral um, complex stronger because um, people see it as being more humane, right? right? Whereas like abolition is about the dismantling of um, of prisons. Punitive justice, so, yeah. But also I think um, ab abolition perspectives recognize um, that people who are and were incarcerated are really experts and that their um, understandings are really important, like their tactics of survival are really important for um, thinking about how to dismantle the system, right? Mm. And so um, there, are, um, there are people who think that um, you know, it's it it is it is important to um, work with native people who are incarcerated. Um, I think um, one thing that is emphasized is to not become a member um, of the prison industrial complex, um, right? But to to be able to um, do that work in ways um, that are subversive and. Um, you know, it, 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 it's walking a fine line, but I think, yeah. I think all of us, or not all of us, but I think a lot of people are working, thinking about how to work um, within and against the system. And so I don't see those two things being at odds. Um, and also I think part of um, abolition is about care and thinking about how to build a caring society and I do research with people who are incarcerated. I work closely with George Bluebird, who is um, an elder, a Lakota elder, activist, artist, grandfather, father, who um, has now been incarcerated just recently for four decades, that anniversary of the four decades past. Um, and so he and I do a lot of um, collaboration together and you know, it's important the way that I approach my book project is not just like, you know, this, it's important, I think, um, as an ethnic studies scholar, 
And as a dance scholar, you know, aiming to do decolonial work that I reveal the ways that people are um, resist, you know, people who are incarcerated are resisting and challenging the system. And it and it's important for me to enact reciprocity in my work, whatever that may look like. And so for me, you know, the care doesn't end, you know, at at the prison door, but I, you know, think about how that can um you know, how those collaborations can continue and how to work within these um, these kind confines to do caring um, and, and reciprocal work that um, is also, you know, the work that the people who are incarcerated are already doing and um, want to do. And I think another short answer to that is I think that we need, you know, many different approaches and many different tactics to doing this work. And, you know, I think a lot of times, too, when we talk about, um, you know, yoga in prison, a lot of times what we tend to focus on or tends to be focused on in scholarship and mainstream discourse are the sanctioned programs, right? The programs that people have gone in and implemented. And um, but there's also a lot of people who are incarcerated, for instance, George Bluebird is often asking me questions about yoga, right? And he has his own practice. I don't know that he's ever like trained with anyone who has come in there and taught yoga, but he's developed his own, you know, unsanctioned practice. And I think that, um, you know, I think that it's really important, you know, people who are incarcerated and people who are incarcerated for very long sentences, it's very important for them to have um these tactics of survival and well-being um within within the prison system and just because you know you might be offering that as a yoga teacher and people might be experiencing you know really important moments of quote unquote liberation you know that doesn't deny that these people are still incarcerated and that the system you know must be dismantled right Right. No, I, I appreciate this response because you're really um, inviting an expansiveness into this conversation and it's that it's non-binary uh, approach that, you know, yes, abolition and, you know, we need to kind of work within the system to uh, share like a, uh, what do you say, uh, a practice of transformation of um, a practice of a restorative um, offerings for the folks who are incarcerated. So it's like a both and situation. So I, I do appreciate that. And this is again a personal question because I really do believe that for, for all of us and especially for folks like you who are working within such uh, different capacities, as a professor, as a person who's writing a book, as to, to, who has all these lived experiences and working within such marginalized communities, how do you take care of yourself? What, do, what are your, some of your non-negotiables of self-care, if you will? I know that's a very cliche term, but how do you build capacity? Yes, I mean, movement practices really are very central for me, for my well-being, and they they always have been from the time when I was a kid and doing martial arts. Um, I wrestled even, uh, I wrestled uh, like 
like freestyle and collegiate style, which is the kind of wrestling that people do in high school. And then I was on our, um, our women's uh, national team, which is what they called the wrestling team, women's wrestling team prior to it being in the Olympics. So like rigorous movement and, you know, not always rigorous, but I definitely, um, there's something about rigorous movement that makes me feel very good afterwards. Um, so I, you know, I have a regular yoga practice. I like to go for walks with my children and, um, our dog, And I recently started doing, um, for about a year, I watched my kids do folklorico dance. And finally it occurred to me, you know, why am I just sitting here watching them? (laughs) I think, I think I should practice along with them, you know, like I've been watching this for a year and it's also has the added benefit of my kids are still young. So after they finish, they would like run to me every song, they would like run to me and try to sit on my lap. But now when I'm on the floor dancing with them, they enjoy it. I enjoy it. Um, it's good for all of us and they can't run to me, right? Like, <laughs> to escape. We're on the floor, to, you know, floor too. So yeah, I think, um, I think that's, you know, I have, I have a different spiritual practices and religious practices that are important to me as well. You know, I have, um, friends, I have a strong network of support with my friends and my family. So, you know, I think the tactics that, you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, other people have as well. Well, thank you for sharing that. And where and how can we support your work? Oh, um, I, you know, I'm, the articles are there on academia.edu. Um, I mean, I think, I, I guess part of my work is like not making it about me. So I guess I think what I would say is like, um, yeah, the articles are there if you want to check it out, but um, instead, maybe something uh, powerful for you to do would to be think about like to learn if you don't know already who's indigenous, what in, um, the indigenous people whose land that you're on. And maybe if there's initiatives like local initiatives for the people whose land that you're on that you might contribute to in some way, either monetarily or um, through volunteering or something like that. So, yeah, I would encourage people to think about um you know, the, the, who's, who's land there, um, they are on and, and, um, how they can be, uh, respectful and reciprocal, um, with their own daily lives. Oh, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. And I am so appreciative of your time and sharing so generously with our listeners. And I cannot wait to go and take a look at all the articles that are on uh, academia.edu. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's such an honor to be in conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Love of Yoga podcast, an offering from Accessible Yoga Association. Please support our work by becoming an ambassador or by visiting our online studio at accessibleyoga.org.